So tonight I wanted to talk about <clears throat> metta practice. In particular as it relates to the cooling down of reactivity, which is something that we've been talking about for a couple weeks. At its base, I think if we were to simplify maybe conceptually what we're doing with meditation is we're training two things, two qualities. We're training attention and we're training intention. Mindfulness is present time awareness that's interested in what's happening here. And oftentimes asking the question, you know, what what is happening? What are we noticing? What is our attention on? And these are, in the more gross forms, we pay attention to people when we're talking to them. We pay attention to different situations and things that are going on in our work lives and things we got to get done, plans, future past. So noticing that, just what our attention is really, what what is that tuned into? And the Buddha encouraged something called Yani Manasakara, which means careful attention. And the word attention in Pali Sanskrit, Manasakara, what it actually means is making in the mind. And so what he kind of said is whatever you pay attention to, it gets made in the mind. And so we want to be careful, you know, where, where we hang out, you know, where our attention lands. And so in order to do that, we train our attention and we develop these real basic grounding skills of practicing being with the breath, practicing being in the body, practicing being with the sounds that are naturally occurring, this present time awareness. So that's what what we're paying attention to, something that we were becoming interested in with this practice. And then we're also training intention, which is the how. How are we relating to what? How are we relating to the what, right? And so mindfulness at its base is a relational practice. There are certain qualities that really we're cultivating, and we could talk about these qualities, but mostly they're felt and mostly they're known intuitively, nonverbal. If we were to name them, I would say four of these qualities is, uh, one is non-judgment. And so, I don't really feel that that word resonates with me too much, but what we basically mean is mindfulness has no opinions. It doesn't judge what it knows, whether it's a sound that I'm noticing or someone that I'm with or you know, an experience in this present time awareness, there's just no opinion. It's just framing it up. It's objective. It's observational. This quality of curiosity or sometimes investigation. Mindfulness, um, you know, to frame up what's happening, to, you know, to practice some presence, takes a little bit of curiosity, a little bit of gentle effort. 
It's probably easy to notice that the mind doesn't so much want to be present. The mind doesn't so much want to follow the breath. It has a lot of other plans and things it would rather be doing. And so, uh, you know, developing that, that quality of curiosity, it takes time. Um, you know, when the mind gets tired, it takes time to encourage the mind to maybe wake up a little bit and to not judge the mind when we're tired, right? That first quality. And then kindness is another quality that we're really developing. Kindness and this fourth quality of responsiveness, they kind of go hand in hand. So as we go about our lives, as we check in with mindfulness and say, yeah, what's happening here? How is it? What is it? How is it? The responsive quality is what does it need? What is what's being brought? What's the attitude or what's the quality? And can we bring forth a quality or an environment of awareness? If awareness is a big field, right? You can pay attention to a lot of objects in a field. I could pay attention to sounds, I could pay attention to the pain in my leg, I could pay attention to any one person in the room, through sight, through any of my senses, including thoughts. I could totally zone out from all of you right now and just pay attention to something else, right? So that's what the object of attention is, but you know, the we're also looking at the environment or the quality. It's kind of like the temperature of the room. If I could have a lot of objects, right? If each person was a different sense or a different thought or a different plan, a different feeling, a different emotion, you know, the temperature of the room is this. What we're really being encouraged to bring forth is a soft and a gentle awareness. Otherwise, what tends to happen is when we practice mindfulness, we can generate some, sometimes this, you know, subtly this aversion or the sense of uh, agitation. Mindfulness can quickly turn into another self-improvement practice, like trying to improve the self. I think oftentimes we're really just trying to see how the self gets in the way so much of the time of just being able to be present, you know, and to respond with some creativity, with some flexibility, and dropping the self for a little bit to just see, you know, what's here. So what is it, how is it, and what does it need? That's kind of the three basic questions that are being asked. And the most important thing through practice, I feel like, is not always necessarily having the answer. The answer changes, right? And that's one thing I feel like if you've been coming for a while, we, we see this, is that what's needed changes. And what we're paying attention to obviously changes, moment to moment to moment to moment. And how we relate to what we're paying attention to, that, that relationship changes over time. So here recently we've been talking about 
what are we waking up to? What is mindfulness interested in looking at? And really, it's an interesting counterintuitive practice in some regard because a lot of what we're waking up to is what's getting in the way of our ease and well-being. So we're actually looking into the stressful patterning of the mind. We're looking into the stressful areas of our lives. We're looking into the rub, the friction. What the, wor- the word the Buddha uses, dukkha, the bumpiness, the stress, unsatisfactoriness of our lives. So we start there, and we start there, and then we back up a step, and we say, well, what causes a lot of this friction and stress in our lives? And the friction and stress in our lives is oftentimes generated because of the ways that we react and the ways that we relate to the conditions of our lives. At its base, the most simplest form psychologists would call this the pleasure-pain dichotomy, just the fact that we're born into a nervous system that's job is to get pleasant things and to avoid unpleasant things, but we're born into a world that has both. (laughs) So we spend a lot of time trying to manage that system and a lot of times being very disappointed at what we get or distracting ourselves from the unpleasant and focusing only on one part. The Buddha is prescription was wide. He said, with mindfulness, we can frame up what's happening here, and we can learn the how, the intention, the wise response to both pleasure and pain, and learn to live in this pleasure-pain life, the ups and downs of our lives, with more creativity. We can engage with what's painful, what's the loss in our lives, and the invalidation, and the not getting what we want. We can meet with this wise response of compassion, which is just a word, really. So we're undertaking that practice. Compassion, which we talked about a few weeks ago, this moving towards and this opening and being willing to hold the pain. With a, in a balanced sense, and learning that sometimes that willingness to move towards our pain, we can kind of topple over into despair. And so to, you know, this is where the creativity comes in, is just being interested, what, is, what would uh, the compassionate response to this, how would that be? With the pleasurable experiences in our lives, sometimes Buddhism can get a kind of be a bummer a little bit. Um, but also being able to fully appreciate the word is rapture, which we don't use oftentimes. It sounds very religious to me, but what it means is the capacity to take active delight in things. And the Buddha would encourage this response, training that intention, developing the capacity. In the Buddhist time, there's no such thing as meditation. That's a 18th century word that we threw back on, you know, all of these practices. And what really the word was oftentimes is bhavana, which means to cultivate, is cultivation. So we're cultivating the capacity for a compassionate response to our pain, and we're cultivating the capacity for 
taking active delight in the more joyful, pleasurable experiences in our life. With the wisdom here, whereas with compassion we can sometimes flip into despair, with pleasure and joy we can sometimes flip into attachment, right? Into clinging and holding on for dear life and smothering all the joy out of a pleasant experience when it's long gone. Um, so being able to, you know, be with a temporary pleasant experience and to be able to hold that respond wisely. So all of this is somewhat abstract and I'm going to continue on this a little bit and we'll get into maybe something more practical, but here recently what we've been talking about is the ways that our reactivity manifests. So what in particular, what are some of the ways that we find ourselves reacting and pushing and pulling against the pleasure and the pain? And its base, the Buddha would call this craving and clinging, tanha and upadana, thirst and clinging. Craving takes on a couple forms. So there's the craving to get something pleasurable through our senses, maybe, and want a bowl of ice cream, right? I don't want to sit around and be bored. I want to eat something, right? I want to do something. I want my phone. I want Facebook. I want to call someone, I would need some action, I need something in my senses, right? You ever have that feeling? Uh, there's a neuroscientist named Melvin Connor, I think I said this a couple weeks ago too, and he, he studies the human nervous system, and he found that the chronic internal state of the human ner nervous system is a vague mixture of anxiety and desire, he says, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. And so the nervous system is just a wanting, you know, a vague mixture of this anxiety and desire, just kind of looking around for the next thing to take refuge in. And the Buddha basically said, well, this is a dead end. And he said, there's tons of pleasure to be had in things and through the senses, and you should enjoy them. He said, but watch out, because this tendency, the wanting... Uh, the craving, which is demanding the satisfaction of our desires, really gets us into a lot of trouble. Right? And we see this in so many ways in our culture and society in the world. Addiction is at epidemic proportions in our country. Um, actually, as a, as a whole, I work in the addictions field. And as a whole, you know, we're incredibly... Uh, failing to to treat addiction in a lot of ways, and it's uh, become an epidemic. And like all things, any disorder, I believe, is just an accentuation of very base human tendencies, this craving, clinging, wanting, having to have this... In this sense, when we're talking about craving for something through our senses, we call that kamatanha, craving for sense desire to be nourished, to be satiated, to quench that kind of thirst. So that's one way we react, and that's one way we distract. It's easier sometimes to see the ways we react instead of the ways that we distract. And so mindfulness gives us the unfortunate advantage of being able to see both a little more often. You know, distraction by its very nature is avoidant. So 
you know, we use this word ignorance sometimes. You know, the Buddhist path is a path towards, you know, liberation from clinging and ignorance into awakening. But ignorance, ignorance, right, that's kind of where that comes from, is we're bringing into frame more of our experience that oftentimes we distract from with all of this stuff. <clears throat> There's also the craving, bhavatanha, uh, which means craving to become, so needing to get some type of, become some type of person. We see this on the gross scale, you know, where we live for titles and jobs and status, we compete with siblings, we compete with you know, classmates and co-workers to get recognized, to get seen. A very natural tendency. We're social people. We've evolved over time. And we want out over the Neanderthals lar largely because we work in groups. And so we need the approval of one another. And we need status. And we need to know our position, our place. So in a sense, I would say that the Buddha has no problem with this. I mean, structure is good. Uh, having some type of identity is necessary, or we have an identity crisis, right? We don't know who we are, and the identity completely melts away, and we freak out a little bit. But what the Buddha was encouraging is that you don't want to cling to a fixed version of yourself, because yourself is not a noun, it's a verb. You are a person in process, and all the things that you do are changing, and so get on with it. Change, you know, change, and start to grip a little bit less around the self, and let the self be more fluid. So we crave and cling to self, image, identity. And then we crave to not become, which is vibhavatanha, uh, which means craving for non-existence, not to become a self. So this can be in a sense of, I just want the fuck out of this, this whole thing. You know, I think this is in large what the millennial generation experiences when, uh, you know, we could talk about this for a while. I'm doing a presentation <laughs> on millennials in a little bit. But <laughs> I really think that a lot of us are just kind of fed up with, uh, with it all. The, our parents have the highest divorce rate out of, uh, you know, the baby boomer generation, high divorce rate, the market crash in 2008, a college degree is no longer a college degree. You know, a lot of us are just like, kind of, you know, fuck this. I don't really want to do this that much anymore. Um, not to say that we're not responsible for our actions. The Buddha would say the opposite. We're still responsible for how we act and behave. But this is the craving for non-existence, the craving to want to get out. Of course, on a really deep level, this can manifest as suicidality and wanting to not exist. And this is still a form of craving. It's a craving to get rid of. It's a craving to not want something that is. Uh, you know, and so here we are again with this practice and this task of coming into what is and being able to hold with and to train our attention to hold with and to hold with in a soft way, in a non-judgmental way, in a curious way, and in a responsive way. Included 
I think at the base or the foundation of all of the Buddhist teaching is this pervasive world view, this view that all beings deep down underneath all of these craving systems, what we're really looking for most of the time is some type of safety or security, some type of ease, some type of well-being. You know, but the wires get all crossed and we, you know, we go out to create who we are and we go out to, you know, experience all of the pleasure and we go out to try to not exist and to get rid of. And the Buddha, you know, basically said that everything we need is already inside of ourselves. So it's a subtractive rather than an additive practice. A lot of times he would use agrarian metaphors like farming. You plant a seed, you water a seed, you bear fruit, and you pick the fruit. We're always planting and watering seeds. You know, Some bring well-being and happiness, and some bring suffering. And so we're trying to look at, okay, we've got this soil, we've got these seeds, which ones do we want to take care of? So we practice the wise response and this intention of caring for and developing a relationship with all the parts of our experience. Nothing's excluded. This is the pervasive worldview, you know, that we all want ease, happiness, well-being. We all want safety, security. And the Buddha said, you know, no part of you is excluded in your practice, that every part of you is um, something to be met, something to be seen, something to be touched into, to be, you know, brought into the frame. And this is where we get the idea of metta, or it comes from the base, mita, kalyana mita, which means spiritual friendship. Some, some of you have heard of that. And Sometimes it's translated as loving-kindness practice, but you know, love can be such a tricky word, and mostly we made that up in the West. We added love onto it, but it's more of a kindless friendly or a kind, a kind friendliness, boundless friendliness. So it's an inclusive, every part of ourselves included, every being, every um, you know, every being is included in this intention. That all deep down, everyone sitting in this room, we want ease, we want well-being, safety, and security. And so we want to keep that in mind, and we want to remember that. We want to remember that. The Buddha didn't have any formal instructions on how to practice metta. As a matter of fact, the idea was if you practice mindfulness, this quality of kindness and friendliness will naturally arise because it's a wise response and it's acceptable all of the time. Kindness here is not to be confused with niceness. It's not about letting someone off the hook. It's not about being stepped all over. It's not about you know, saying something sweet or friendly. 
um, but it's a tone, it's a quality that understands that deep down we do want this happiness and some safety, some ease and well-being, and that we keep that intention in mind in our relationships with ourselves and with others. I like looking at it as more of a gentle and a soft landing. Uh, so it's a... Uh, I mean, I can't help but describe it this way. For me, my practice personally is... I'm completely fine with calling this self-soothing, really. It has this tendency or this quality of like a mother picking up a young child and caring for it. You know, the kid may throw a temper tantrum because they don't get a Snickers in the grocery store, right? Uh, we have people like this in our lives, and we have parts of ourselves that throw these tantrums, and so caring for something in a way that has a tone, even though the mom may still not get the toddler the Snickers, right, there's still a tone. The ideal mother we're talking about, too. <laughs> Let's be clear. Just thinking of all the times that that didn't end so well for me. But you know, they're there, it's okay. You know, you're all right. And so we practice this for ourselves. We look at, you know, what are all these ways that I react that we talked about, all the ways that I distract, what's underneath that? Where's the, what's underneath? The loneliness, the fear, the anxiety. Metta was taught as an antidote to fear. So underneath a lot of these ways that I react is because I'm afraid. I'm afraid you won't like me. I'm afraid I won't be accepted. I'm afraid I'm going to do a bad job. I'm afraid that... You know, I'm not going to get what I need. I'm going to be single forever. I'm going to, you know, all of these fears. And we really look down. There's so much of it that's underneath there. And so metta is soothing and, and calming and caring for that part of ourselves. May I be at ease with this right now? You know, this is really hard for me. May I be kind and gentle towards myself, however things are. This is balanced with the heart quality of equanimity. Equanimity says that I wish well-being for myself and for others. I wish kindness. I wish friendliness. I wish ease and happiness for myself and for others. And I understand that my happiness is directly related to how I respond to a situation, not the situation itself, that my happiness is dependent upon what I do, not what I want. But the Buddha, and really what was influential about the Buddha, other than, than other Vedic teachers of his time, because there were plenty, uh, really it, what he said is that the whole path of awakening starts with intention. And so he says, you know, intention's the forerunner of speech, it's the forerunner of action, you know, whatever we think, really, um, you know, we speak and act in those ways, and those become our habits, and they develop over time. And so touching into this intention of kindness, of friendliness, of this soft and gentle attitude towards ourselves, while also this intention and this, 
you know, this acknowledgement that we're all responsible for what comes out of our mouth, what we consume, what goes into our mind, what goes in, you know, what, how we act and behave in the world. But if we really develop this intention, it will show up more. And so how do we do this? First thing I would say, which we'll talk about later on, is that um, it's hard to respond wisely to our fears, insecurities, anxieties if we're acting in ways that are inconsistent with that wish. So one of the best things to do is almost the behavioral strategy of cleaning up our behavior first. So developing community, looking at the ways that we majorly cause harm, practicing causing less harm, less harm, you know, taking on some intentions each day to practice in the ways that we act in our world, you know, starting to, you know, uh, practice some abstinence from some of these harmful behaviors and start to develop some accountability around those. The atmosphere of the mind will be a lot more soft and gentle if we start to take care of some of that. We want to switch over from the society and culture in which we are raised that tends to put this moralistic stamp on everything, that it's right or wrong or sinful or good or bad or, you know, it's just a matter of, Buddhism can sometimes be said that happiness is a collection of good habits, right? And so it's just a matter of that our our environment, our inner environment is being created by what we create, what we do. And so we can first look at our behaviors, our actions in the world, and we start to tune that up a little bit, develop some accountability, develop some community, have people we can talk to about some of this stuff. You know, once that gets it gets a little bit better, then we can start to uh, find some more ease and well-being internally. At the same time, here we like to burn the rope at both ends. So while we're working on that... <laughs> We can develop formal meditation, bhavana, cultivation practices around metta, where you actively practice this intention. In secular mindfulness, they call this cultivating positive emotions. May I be at ease with whatever is happening. It's not, may I be at ease once I get rid of. So it's not an emotional lobotomy. It's not cultivating the emotions that we want and getting rid of the ones we don't want. It's developing a wise emotional response too. So even the parts of ourselves, anxiety. You know, may I be at ease. Sometimes you'll be doing metta practice and your mind's like, fuck this, I don't... This is some new age bullshit, right? I don't relate to this at all. I hate this. I'm hungry, I want to leave. May I be at ease with the part of my mind that doesn't like this? You know, that's averse to this idea that can't even get behind this. Which was my tendency for, I, I should say, for, for a year, year and a half of this practice. You know, I, so much, I lived so much of my life, uh, I lived so much of my life in active addiction, you know, um, from the time I was 16, I was using hard drugs, I was arrested by the time I was 18, you know, and I, my trust between 
people that were really supposed to be there and to care for me put on this front. You know, a lot of adults and people in my life, you know, I felt like they, they were externally saying that they cared or that they wanted to know how I was doing or whatever, and this trust had been broken at this young age and in a way that I couldn't understand. I couldn't see clearly. I didn't have this practice. I just had that feeling and that experience of betrayal and abandonment and neglect. And so when I come in, you know, okay, now all of a sudden I'm going to sit here and offer myself kindness and friendliness, I didn't buy into that. You know, I didn't feel like it was safe. I didn't feel like it was anything that I really wanted anything to do with. I wanted wisdom. I saw the value in that. Yeah, I'll master my own mind. I'll master my emotional experience. I'll outsmart suffering and I'll get on with it. (laughs) You know, but kindness, friendliness... No way. So it's, it, it's important. It's a, called sometimes a purification practice that all of the parts of ourselves, anything that arises, if something aversive happens during the meditation practice, that's great. it's great to work with that. Developing a friendly attitude towards that part. You know, there's this roomy poem that probably everyone's read called The Guest House, and he talks about you know, uh, making ourselves a guest house for all of these parts of ourselves, for the fear, for the loneliness, for the anger, for the resistance, for the resentment, for the betrayal, for the joy, for the excitement, for all parts of ourselves, inviting it all in and letting it have a seat at the table. You know, being a friend. So it's a purification practice, and over time it develops into a cultivation practice. So over time, I actually have experience personally doing a lot of this practice. You know, I, I actually have a sense of what the state, what that quality or attitude of metta is like. I, that environment and that gentle, soft, friendly attitude. I have a sense of what that feels like towards myself and towards others. The way we do this is we use phrases. So if you're new, what we'll do is we'll... uh, And it's not necessary to do this. We've just kind of decided over time that this is a good way to do it. Um, Because what we're doing here is we're training intention. We're we're mostly working on training intention. But you're training your attention at the same time. So your attention goes into these phrases and just saying them. And you're trying to connect with that underlying intention as you say it. You want to pick something very simple, and you usually want to use someone else's phrases to begin to just try it out and get a sense for what metta is. Um, The phrases that I use, I only use three. I use... May I be at ease, may I be at peace, may I be kind and gentle towards myself. May I be at ease, may I be at peace, may I be kind and gentle towards myself. At at least that's the way that I teach. The way that I practice is may I be at ease, may I be kind and gentle towards myself, may I be happy and may I be free. As someone that has waged war on the idea of happiness, I've been practicing trying to understand what that intention could be, what that state of mind might be like. The invitation is, as you say each phrase, you say them silently to yourself, as you say each phrase to try it on and to almost imagine what that, would, that experience would be like internally. How would your body feel to be at ease right now? 
You know, how would a kind and gentle mind and attitude be like? It's patient, it's playful, got enough time. What would what would what would the what would these experiences you know how would those things feel like almost? Uh, good news is is that you won't necessarily feel anything. You won't necessarily experience. You're not you know we're not meditating to have some type of experience. We're training this intention, and if you train an intention, it shows up. Because you've been practicing it. And whatever we practice at, we get better at, right? And so practicing these intentions, they show up. They show up. They show up in our daily lives. And so in the beginning, we're practicing with these phrases. And what we're really doing is we're developing some concentration. Just trying to remember what the hell the phrase is and to say it again, right? And to notice when the mind's wandering and to say, oh, you know, oh, shoot. All right. Uh, may I be at ease with the mind that's wandering? Cool. Okay, come back. You know, and practicing the phrases really helps to train your attention to show up. There's a lot of depth to all of this, you know, and I almost sit here wondering how much, you know, what way to go in, what way to get into the water, which way to explain. Mostly it's best to just do it. The last thing I'll say about it is that you... Uh, can also sit and intentionally practice metta towards different categories of people. If it's really hard, if you feel like, you know, kind of like me in the beginning, I didn't really connect with any idea of what kindness or friendliness was like, what you can do is you can start by imagining, they call it a benefactor, which is basically a living being, someone that's not dead, a living being, someone that's not your romantic partner, that's easy for you to feel kindness and friendliness towards, right? I use my grandmother a lot of the time. I got this grimace tattoo for her. She's my <coughs> homie. So she's one of my, you know, easy people. I love her. She's just so, you know, I like her a lot. She's, fr- you know, she's not even that nice, but she's just, <laughs> she's just okay to be around, you know, and that's what Meta is for me. It's just this, okay, cool. Like she can be there with me. I can say the wildest, most outlandish shit to her and she's cool with it. <laughs> And that's, you know, that's that presence, that's that quality. And so, you know, what I would do for a while is I would just offer these phrases to her and just imagine that she was sitting in front of me. And it's not any magical or metaphysical thing. Maybe it is for you, but the Buddha's, you know, Buddha didn't have an opinion like that this is like some wish that's going to be granted, right? It's just developing the intention, that that mind state of, of kindness and happiness or kindness and friendliness. So you can start with a benefactor. It can be any being. It can be a pet. Um, they do recommend that it, the person or being's not dead, and they do recommend that it's not your romantic partner. Uh, this being may change over time. I may be pissed at my grandma, and so I go and find someone else and then work with them. And then after you do that for a little bit, you know, five, ten minutes of practice, you can start to turn that same, now that you have a connect, connection with that understanding of what that may be like, you, you substitute yourself for that person. It's like, okay, now towards myself, I'm going to offer the same intention. So there's benefactor, there's self, there's neutral person, which is actually one of my favorite categories. Um, just practicing with someone in your day-to-day life that you never really talk to, that you don't know much about. The way that this has helped me a lot, it's helped me open when I practice with neutral people. I sit at home for... 30, 40 minutes, and I practice towards 
benefactor and self, a neutral person, so on and so forth. The neutral person has helped me to understand that there's so many people that I walk by and drive by and so many people that I never talk to that also have a lot of distress and suffering and a lot of pain and a lot of joy and they have this full range of everything that I experience and it helps me to connect with that. You know, may you be at ease with whatever you have going on. I don't even know. You know that intention. And then you can practice with a difficult person. In the beginning with difficult people, if you want to work on that, pick up the five pound weights and work yourself up to the hundred pound weights. You don't want to go for, you know, whomever. Uh, it's going to make political references, but maybe it's <laughs> we are still in South Nashville. In the South, in Nashville. Um, but, you know, uh, practicing with difficult people that are maybe just a little bit annoying or irritating, working your way up, and then practicing in this category of all beings, expanding that intention. So it's a lot of information. But mostly it's a simple practice. Sitting here, offering ourselves some phrases working to care for primarily and respond to fear, which causes a lot of reactivity in our lives, to create a sense of inner well-being. So we'll take a little bit, just two, three-minute break. If you need to run to the restroom, we'll do some practice together and we'll open it up. Um, yeah, so feel free to stretch your legs and do whatever you'd like.